This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, we're back, and today we're continuing with our latest series called Saved. Throughout this series, we've been exploring the book of Ephesians together, verse by verse, one chapter at a time, and looking at what it means to live a saved life, a life that is fully loved and graced and reconciled, unified, made alive, raised up, and seated together with Christ in heavenly places. If you have your Bibles, let's jump right in today. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. I'll be reading from the ESV, and here's what it says. Verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Picking right up from where we ended last week, Paul reminds us that his chief position as a believer who is testifying of what he has both seen and experienced is in the Lord. To be in Christ is to have your life firmly rooted and anchored in who Jesus is. That's how Paul identifies. In fact, you could say that the sum of all of his theology or thoughts about God can be found in that simple yet very profound statement, in Christ. To be in Christ is to have your life anchored in who Jesus is, to bear forth his fruit and his life as one who abides in the vine. What did Jesus himself say in John chapter 15, verses four through five? He says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The invitation to the Christian life to follow Jesus is actually an an invitation to abide in Jesus, the true vine. It's to bear forth his fruit. And the implication is that apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing. And I looked up that word in the Greek, and get this, the word nothing actually means nothing. When it comes to what our lives actually bear witness to and produce, apart from Jesus, we are reduced to nothingness. And that should be a sober reminder that regardless of all the good things that we do, or the things that we build, or the wealth that we accumulate, it's all for nothing if our lives are not rooted in this fact, in being in Christ. And so Paul says, I say and testify to this reality, to being in Christ, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Remember, most of Paul's audience in Ephesus were Gentiles or non-Jews. And as we saw a couple chapters ago, they've now been grafted into this commonwealth of Israel, meaning they're now a people of covenant, a people of God's own choosing, a holy priesthood, a holy nation designed to showcase the life of God to the world. And the truth is, it's hard to showcase the life of God if you're still walking the same old walk, if you're still doing things the same way you used to before you believed. It's interesting to me that Paul says it's futile, meaning fruitless. So he's contrasting a life of being in Christ, of abiding in the vine and bearing forth the fruit and life of God with the old way of doing things that is utterly fruitless and futile. He says, don't walk that way. Don't walk or live the way people who don't have a covenant with God walk or live, which implies that we actually have a choice. Did you know that you can be saved and still walk like an unbeliever? 
Did you know that you can believe in Jesus, even accept him as your personal savior, but never actually allow him to be Lord? Well, what do I mean? I mean that it is utterly possible to look to Jesus to rescue you from your sins and to reconcile you to the Father's heart, but simultaneously possible for you to walk in a way that is inconsistent with what you affirm and believe, resulting in Jesus having very little access to actually change your heart and behaviors. Because the truth is this, it's easy to look to Jesus as Savior, but it's actually a lot more difficult for us to receive him as Lord. Because we want control of our lives, don't we? We want to be able to dictate outcomes and direct what we want to happen. But to receive Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, or we could say um, as the director of your life, is to humbly admit, first and foremost, that you're not the most qualified person to make the best decisions for your life. And we do that daily. We start with small decisions, not only to put Jesus first and to seek first his kingdom and righteousness, but to yield to the life of Jesus, the life of the spirit that he wants to live in us through surrender. You see, a saved life is really a, a yielded life. We like to use that word surrender, which can be helpful because it implies that we've given up. We've given up on trying to do it our way and we've embraced doing it his way. Remember, his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. When we receive Jesus as Lord, we're asking him to have his way in our life and to give us his thoughts. We call this having the mind of Christ, being able to think like Jesus. And friends, let me tell you, it's so much easier to think like Jesus when Jesus is the one in charge of doing the thinking. Can I get an amen out there or slap a high five or a smiley face emoji at me? When the Holy Spirit comes, which is actually how Jesus comes to express his life in us, he comes to dwell richly within our hearts. But he always comes in like a gentleman, meaning he doesn't enter our house and start ravaging the place. He doesn't burst in and start throwing the furniture all over the room like my kids like to do. No, he, he doesn't tear down every wall and start slapping new paint everywhere. No, he very carefully and methodically and surgically starts working on one room at a time. And he takes his time because he's not in a rush. He's actually more patient than we know. He cares about us, and he cares about the way things get done. He's that involved. Last week, we spoke about maturity and unity and how God wants us to grow up together as his body. And the truth is, maturity is really a sign that God has more fully renovated your heart and life in him. It's a sign that he has more access to those places. And there's always more room to grow. I mean, there's always more areas of our heart that God wants to have access to, meaning we're not done growing yet because God's not done renovating the place yet. He's a master builder who is building something good so that when people look at our lives and look at our lives then, they say, what happened? I mean, tell me about the difference. When people look at us, they should see Jesus. Amen. That's what Paul's getting at here. Don't walk like a Gentile. In other words, don't live like a person who doesn't have a relationship with God, which is futile and fruitless. And he goes on even further to embolden his point in verses 18 through 19. It says this, for they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, so not only is a life apart from Christ a fruitless life, it's also a darkened life. He says they are darkened in their understanding, meaning the light hasn't been turned on yet. They're still fumbling around in the dark, 
bumping into things and practicing dark deeds that flow from dark thoughts. And as a result, they're still alienated or cut off from the life of God because they're ignorant. In other words, they don't know any better. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about right now because that was you. And the truth is, at one point in time, none of us did. We acted the same way. We did the same exact thing. We had the same darkened understanding and were alienated from the life and promises of God because someone else hadn't turned on the lights for us yet. And church, that's why God is calling us right now in this moment to arise and shine because there are people all around us that are living in darkness who are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because they don't know any better. No one's shown them yet. They're still ignorant of the things that we know and now believe. And they need someone to lovingly come along and turn on the lights for them. Church, that's the calling of God for all of our lives, to be salt and light, to shine our lights before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven, the Bible says. Paul continues his argument. Not only are people living in the dark, cut off from the life of God because they don't know any better, because they're ignorant, but also because they've become hardened toward him. In verse 18, Paul says all of this is due to their hardness of heart. He says they have become callous even. And the truth is, most people are living with callous and hardened hearts because they've been hurt. And how do I know this? Well, because when you're really hurt, or we could say wounded, you develop some scars. And when you're hurt or even wounded in the same place enough times, you're going to develop some scar tissue. And that scar tissue is going to build up and produce a callousness in that particular area of your life. When I first started learning how to play the guitar, my fingers were not used to the pain and the physical hurt inflicted by the metal strings upon my sensitive skin because they hadn't hardened or developed a callus on them yet. As a result, they would often crack, uh, even tear, sometimes even bleed, I know. And they did this for quite some time. That's why most people give up after a couple of months. And then I kept practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And eventually, over a lengthy period of time, my fingertips began to harden. And eventually, the metal strings no longer inflicted any pain or hurt upon me. They were calloused. Now, although that's a good thing in the case of my guitar playing, it's not such a good thing when it comes to our hearts because our hearts were not originally created to harden. Actually, Quite the opposite. They were created to feel and empathize and to care and understand. They were created to reflect our Creator's greatest intentions for us. Because of our sin and hurt and pain and the wounds inflicted by us and the wounds inflicted on us, they now harden and are prone to callousness. But I don't believe it has to be that way for us. One of the great prayers that David in the Bible actually prayed was this, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. That's Psalms 51. You see, God doesn't want you to, to live with a hardened or calloused heart. He wants you to have a clean and a new heart, a heart that beats for him and not for the things of this world. Paul goes on to say in verse 19 that the result of living with a hardened and calloused heart is that it leads to sensuality and greediness to practice every kind of impurity. You see, when your heart is callous, it's easy to justify its impurities and its greed and its desire for pleasure. In fact, it's a hard heart 
that causes many people to not only resist the life of God, but to falsely believe that there's nothing beyond greed or pleasure for them. And the sad yet ironic part is that God is actually the author of pleasure. He has designed us to experience pleasure more fully and redemptively. In case you didn't know this, sex was actually God's design, not ours. I know that might come, to a sh- come as a shock to some of you, but the truth is God designed sex for our joy and pleasure. Just as he made Sabbath as a gift for us, he made sex as a gift for us to enjoy the way that he intended it. In addition to sexual pleasure, he wants us to know the freedom and delight that comes from having a heart that is fully alive, fully capable of feeling and experiencing every good thing that he has for us because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Amen? And so I would add or contend that when your heart is hard or calloused, you're not really experiencing all that God has for you. You may be seeking your own aim or sensuality or pleasure or living out every impure thought or desire, but it's always going to come up short of all that God has for you. The world and the enemy don't want you to know that. They want you to go on thinking that you're going to miss out on something if you open up your heart to receive Jesus as both Savior and Lord of it. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus always has better things in store for us. So, moving forward, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned from Christ. That is not the way you learned from Christ. Here, Paul pivots with a giant exclamation mark. That is not the way. This is not what you've learned from Jesus. In other words, danger, Will Robinson, danger. This is not going to end well. This is not going to help you flourish, so turn back. Do not proceed any further. Verse 21, assuming that you have actually heard about him, meaning Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Once again, he's assuming that we are people who know Jesus and who know his ways and were taught his truth. And maybe you're watching today and you don't know Jesus and you weren't taught his truth and you don't know about a relationship with him. In just a few moments, I want to provide you the opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And then we're going to pray together because the good news is that Jesus has already said yes to you. Moving forward again, verse 22, it says this, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Once again, we have a part to play in this deal. He says to put off, to cast off your old self, it's like casting it away like an old garment and to not pick it up again. Just the other day, I spent some good time cleaning out my closet finally, and it just felt like a great time to get rid of some stuff. Anybody else know what I mean? I mean, How crazy is it that we accumulate all this stuff, right? Over the years we go, how did we end up with all this? And I had clothes from a much skinnier version of Jason. (laughs) Truth be told, clothes that I'm probably not going to be able to wear again for some time, mostly because I love food, let's be honest, but also because the clothes themselves were just out of style. And yet we're holding on to this stuff for for some crazy reason. But that's exactly what we do, isn't it? We hold on to our old way of life because we think, it still has value for us. Or maybe it's still really comfortable and it brings back all those nostalgic feelings. I get it. Those feelings are very real and very powerful, like our sin. But Paul says, put off your old self. In other words, get rid of it because it belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So hear me on this. Your old self is corrupt and deceitful 
and it has no place in your life today. It no longer has any value for you. So put it off. Don't just hide it in the back of your closet somewhere. Come on, get rid of the dang thing, amen? So that, verses 23 and 24, you can be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now we're getting down to the nitty gritty, folks. God wants your, your thoughts to be renewed. And he wants you to put on your new self fashioned after God's own likeness in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he's opened up his heavenly wardrobe and closet to you. Come on. And he's saying, go on in. Pick out a new outfit. Ladies, God has a walk-in closet like you've never dreamed of. It makes that celebrity's house and mansion up the street look like a joke. He's saying, this is what I want for you. For you to be dressed and adorned in my righteousness and holiness. Friends, when you know who you are in Christ Jesus, you don't need to derive your value from anybody else or anything else because... You've put on the new. You're dressed in the king's robe with his ring on your finger and his sandals on your feet. And now he shows us how to really walk this thing called living out. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. According to verse 25 here, we put away falsehood and we speak truthfully with one another. We don't tell little lies or what we like to call white lies. Come on, there's no such thing as a white lie. Every lie is a lie and has the potential to cause hurt or pain. That's why we're called to speak truthfully. What if we really lived this way? What if instead of lying about being sick and calling our boss, we just told him the truth? Hey, yeah, you know, uh, I haven't taken any sick, day sick days in a while and I'm just super exhausted and I really need a, a day to do that. What if we trusted God and, and trusted that God would actually be honored by our commitment to tell the truth and actually work things out on our behalf? What if when we're late to that meeting or appointment, we don't make up some lousy excuse, but just say, you know what? I hit the snooze a couple times today. I was really tired and I didn't give myself enough time to prepare. I'm really sorry about being late today. Why do we feel like we have to cover up and practice falsehood all the time? I'll tell you why. Because we're afraid. But you see, there's no fear in love. And if we're going to put off the old and embrace the new, we need to be a people that are committed to the truth and to loving ourselves and other people well. And the best way to love someone else well is to deal truthfully with them. I believe they'll actually respect us more for it. And your life and mine will be less full of anxiety and stress. Trust me on that. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Did you know that God gives you permission to be angry? Did you know that anger is not a sin? God gets angry. Jesus got angry. You and I experience anger. But the key, hear me on this, the key is that in our anger, we don't sin. This is probably the hardest thing for us to do because it's so easy when you're angry to take it to the next level and to act out in a way that is destructive and harmful. As someone who has actually really struggled with anger, I can tell you this is easier said than done. But one of the ways that we do this or practice being angry without sinning is by not carrying it with us into the next day. Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't store it up. Don't go to bed angry because you're going to wake up angry. You're going to carry it with you into the next day. And if you do that once, I'm telling you, it's going to get easier to do it 
again and again. And he says, give no opportunity to the devil. The truth is, the devil is always looking for an opportunity to assert influence in your life. As I've said before, he asserts influence through you believing his lies, by you empowering the liar, or through you leaving him an open door in your life. And unchecked anger is one way that he can be given an opportunity to work. This is why left unchecked, anger can destroy everything. And we see it in our culture and in our families and in our lives and in our marriages. We see, the, we see those things ruined because of unchecked, or we could even say unholy anger. And because of it, the devil is running rampantly through our society today. That's a big reason why Paul wants us to deal with our anger and find more healthy ways to express it the same way Jesus did. Meaning, you can be angry and not sin. You can be so frustrated and grieved by something and still not provide the enemy an open door or foothold in your life. Which means that you and I need real outlets for our anger. If you're storing anger up inside, eventually you're going to explode. I know because I've done it. And the Lord doesn't want you to wreck what he's building in your life. Amen? So we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Man, we need God's help in this area to bear forth the fruit of patience and long-suffering. Paul continues with a few more directives for our lives. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So maybe your issue is not anger, but maybe you're a thief who likes to steal. God says, don't steal, but work for it. Do honest work with your own hands so that you can have enough to share with people in your life that are in need. Your life and my life should be so abundantly full because of our own commitment to do honest work that we have more than enough to bless other people. And the truth is this, many of us aren't able to bless others or share with people in need because we don't have anything in the first place. And we don't have anything in the first place because we're not doing honest work with our own hands. We're not endeavoring to labor after something well. And so then we justify stealing. And that can include taking from people that have because we think that we are owed something too. Entitlement's dangerous. Listen, there's nothing godly about stealing from the rich to give to the poor. We glorify and, and glamorize the Robin Hood syndrome. But here in scripture, we find absolutely no evidence for it. Instead, we're told, you get to work and stop being lazy. Do some honest labor and work with your own hands so that you don't have to take from others who have worked hard for what they have. I'm always amazed when people put down or belittle or diminish those that have, because typically, not in every case, but in many cases, those that have are those that have worked really hard. Most of the wealthy people that I know have a tremendous work ethic and have built amazing disciplines and habits into their life to help them become successful. So to all of you young people out there, and those of you that aren't working right now, hear me on this. God wants you to work. Don't look to the government as your bailout. Don't look to the government as your source. Don't look to a promising politician. Come on, look to God as your source and get to work. Amen? Amen? Okay. Verse 29. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Did you know that God wants you to be an agent of grace for others? How do I become an agent of grace for others, Pastor Jason? Well, I'm glad you asked. You become an agent of grace for other people in the way that you use your mouth 
to bless them and build them up for good. Paul is saying, don't let any corruptible or corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Meaning, once again, we get to choose how we use our mouths. We can speak life and blessing, or we can speak death and cursing. We can build up, or we can tear down. That's the power of the tongue. And I don't know about you, but I want to use my mouth to build people up and to encourage them. That's a big reason why Courageous Church even exists, to encourage or to bring courage to others, to, to build up the body like we've been speaking about the last few weeks. So let's be a people that give grace to those who hear. How awesome is it that God would use you and I to extend grace to other people? Maybe you never thought about it like that before, but that's the truth that God is inviting us into today, to be an agent of grace. Man, I hope you grab a hold of that today. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Did you know that the Holy Spirit can actually be grieved? Did you know that God's heart can actually break for things? Did you know that he too experiences sorrow and pain, even disappointment? If someone told you that God's always in a good mood, that's not always the case because Paul here says that it's actually possible to grieve him, that the Holy Spirit himself can be grieved. And a big reason why is because he loves us so much. In other words, God grieves because he, because he actually invests his heart. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said that grief is the sweet combination of anger and love. And I like that because it emphasizes the tension that comes from caring about others. And the truth is, God cares more about people than any of us could possibly imagine. That's why he's so grieved when we reject his love and choose to do life apart from him. That's why his heart breaks over sin and the things that keep us so bound, because God is love. God doesn't just love, he is love. That's who he is in his nature and person. He is the full embodiment of love. So when he sends his Holy Spirit into our lives, he's sending his very nature and person into our fleshly humanity which means there's often going to be a conflict between who he is in us and how we choose to live and operate in him. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? I think there are many ways that we can grieve him, including blatantly sinning and speaking falsely. But one of the biggest ways that we grieve him is when we ignore him, when we don't spend any time with him. Let me give you an illustration to help with this thought. I love my wife. I have invested my heart in a relationship with my wife. Not only do I enjoy being with her, but I relish the intimate moments that we get to spend together when it's just her and I, especially when the kids are gone. All right, when the kids went back to school just a couple weeks ago, we both immediately felt such a sense of relief. Not because we don't love our kids or enjoy being with them, no, but because we often don't get enough time just to be with each other. And there's nothing more that I love than when she shares her heart with me and invites me into that. You see where I'm going with this? In the same way, I believe this. God is jealous for you. He's jealous for your love and affection and your time with him, especially when it's just the two of you. And I think one of the worst things that we can do to grieve him or the Holy Spirit is to ignore him. I mean, just think about that in the context of relationship. The worst thing that I could do to grieve Candace's heart is to ignore her. The worst thing she could do to grieve mine is to ignore me. And if we're all made in God's image and likeness to reflect who he is, how would we expect it to be any differently with God? You see, yes, God is supreme. 
He is sovereign and all-powerful and beyond comprehension, but he's also a person. And he has feelings, and he can be grieved. So we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit in the same way that you and I would be sensitive to a, a dove that landed on your shoulder. If your goal is to do life with this dove, like the Holy Spirit remaining on your shoulder, how would you walk and talk and conduct your daily affairs? Probably a little differently than you currently are, right? Absolutely you would, and that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And finally, in verses 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, bitterness has no place in your life. Wrath and unchecked anger and clamor have no place in your life. Slander and malice have no place in your life. You know what's supposed to occupy a big place in your life? Kindness, tender-heartedness, forgiveness, because God in Christ Jesus first forgave you. And he was kind and tender-hearted to you. And rather than pouring out his anger and wrath on you, which he had a right to do, he poured out his love and his mercy instead. A saved life is a life that recognizes that we, who were once children of wrath, are now children of light and love and mercy. And because we've received all these things, we can now walk in them ourselves and give them to others. Friends, that's ultimately what Christ wants for our lives, for you and I to put off the old and to put on the new, to not walk like the Gentiles do in fruitless deeds and futile living, but to walk as those who have a covenant with the creator of the stars, to walk as those who are not prone to falsehood or speaking lies, but who do honestly and work honestly with their own hands and share abundantly with others, to be a people that use our mouths to bless and build others up, a people who are kind and tender-hearted, who forgive much because they know they've been forgiven of much. Beloved, that's who Christ is calling you to be today, and I'm here to remind you. Maybe you've been watching or listening to this message online today, and you, you don't know Jesus, and I want to give you the opportunity to get to know him and to be filled with his spirit right now. And that begins with you saying yes to him, yes to receive him as both Savior and Lord of your life. At Courageous Church, our chief desire is to help you love, follow, and serve Jesus courageously all the days of your life. And so I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer with me, we pray it every week, and it goes like this. Jesus, Savior, save me from myself. Save me from all the things that keep me bound. I believe and confess that you are the Son of God, the Messiah. I believe that you died on that cross for me and that God raised you to life again. Jesus, I ask that you would come now and give me a new life of freedom and hope in you. Come fill me with your Holy Spirit all the days of my life and make everything new. And if you just prayed that with us, we want to know about your decision today. We want to say welcome to the family for those of you that said yes to him. And we'd love to help you get connected either here at Courageous Church in Salt Lake City or wherever you're watching from. We'd love to help you plug into a great local church. You can go to CourageousChurch.com to fill out a digital connect card. And this will help our team know how to best follow up with you and pray for you in the days ahead. As I said at the beginning of this broadcast, we are a people that are passionate about prayer and we'd love to pray with you. We also would love to help you take some next steps and put a new Bible in your hands as well. For those of you that are here local, we're going to be gathering at City Hall Park in Holiday this week. And if you're watching on Saturday, today on Sunday, 
September 13th at 10 a.m. And, and we'd love to see you there. We're also going to be celebrating our one-year anniversary as a church. And so we asked Jurassic Tacos to come out and cater our event. There's going to be so many tacos. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> All right. As always, if Courageous Church is your home church, if you're committed to this work, we want to remind you to honor God with your giving, with your first fruits and with your best. Your generosity allows us to reach other people with the hope, healing, courage, and life of God. It helps us to further the mission that God has given us for the people of Salt Lake City, the Mountain West, and beyond. And if you want to be a big part of making a difference, you can use one of the links that we've posted right there in the comment section, or just head on over to CourageousChurch.com giving to give online. We want to thank you in advance for your love and support. And we want you to know we love you, church. We love you guys. We are praying for you. You are God's masterpiece. You are his absolute best. So, as I always like to say, be strong and be courageous. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.